diagrams, what are their role in geometry? Some people like to think that the logic of a geometrical proof doesn't depend on the diagram. Mathematics is supposed to be pure, absolute, and the diagrams that seems connected to a visual, intuitive, makes it psychological, uh, perhaps even subjective. So certain people don't like those associations one bit. They try to minimize the role of diagrams. Maybe diagrams are just uh, crutches to help those with the weaker minds, whereas a perfect logical reader could follow the proof from the text alone. Well, at least some people like to think so. It's a dogma which fits modern tastes very well. Historically, though, that interpretation is uh, quite a poor fit. In some ways, classical geometry appears to have embraced visuality rather than try to replace it with abstract logic. There are signs of this attitude in the very language of Greek geometry. The word for proving is the same as the word for constructing. Graphene, to draw is the Greek terminology for that. To prove something is literally to make it graphic, you know, that's the etymological origin of the term. And a, a theorem in ancient Greek geometry is a diagramma, a diagram. So instead of the Pythagorean theorem, the Greeks would say the Pythagorean diagram, something like that. So uh, indeed, there is uh, one diagram for each theorem in Greek mathematics. That's a very rigid rule. In modern mathematics, we often find it uh, natural to have several pictures for some proofs, maybe no pictures at all in many other proofs. You just do what comes natural to explain the, the particular ideas, the particular content for any given theorem. Not so the Greeks. One theorem, one picture. This rule was extremely firmly ingrained in their conception of geometry. And not only in geometry, in fact, Euclid follows this rule slavishly, even when he writes about number theory. For instance, he proves that if a prime number divides A times B, then it divides either A or B. That's a very important theorem. It's still proved in every modern book on number theory, but no modern book would include a picture for this. It's just not a visual thing. It doesn't make sense to draw a picture to go with it because the content is not visual in nature. Euclid does, though. The numbers that he's talking about, he draws them as line segments, uh, the the bigger the number, the longer the line. But that has little to do with the proof. The proof is not visual. It's it's just as abstract as the ones in the modern books. So the diagram doesn't really do anything. You're not actually using it. And it's the same way, theorem after theorem after theorem. You know, Euclid has these useless diagrams, basically relevant to the content. They're extremely schematically representing the idea of uh, of numbers of different sizes. And, but he insists on this rule, one theorem, one diagram, even when it doesn't really seem to serve any purpose. Or at least it doesn't serve any purpose in terms of capturing or visualizing the steps of the proof, or the logic of the reasoning. Maybe it has other purposes. One purpose could be to signal that number theory is subsumed by geometry. The number five really just means a line segment of length, five units. Euclid seems to be saying with, with these pictures. So since Euclid has established the foundations of geometry, and number theory, so to speak, lives within geometry, therefore it follows that Euclid has established the foundations for number theory as well. Number theory doesn't need separate foundations because it is subsumed by geometry. Maybe this is what Euclid is trying to emphasize with all these uh, pictures of numbers.
Or perhaps Euclid needs pictures because it doesn't have algebra. A modern proof of theorems like this one are very dependent on algebraic notation. If P divides AB, then P divides A or B. In the course of the proof, you keep referring to relationships between these numbers all the time. Suppose P divides AB, but not A, etc., etc. So it would be very hard to get all that across without algebraic symbols. If you have a picture, you don't need algebra because you can point to the diagram. Instead of the letters A, B, P, you have line segments of different lengths that you can point to and say, suppose that one divides that one. So you don't need algebraic symbols then. The mode of presentation is oral. You have your audience in front of you and you have drawn the diagram in the sand with a stick and you point to it and you reason your way through the proof and say well, that and that and you keep pointing all the time. You, you might say, well, Euclid's in diagrams, we see that it does have labels like A, B, C, etc. So he is referring to entities by letter or label designation, not merely by pointing visually. So, well, maybe. You could also argue, actually, it's not really what Euclid's A, B, C mean. When Euclid calls things alpha, beta, gamma, it is perhaps inaccurate to translate that as A, B, C. It could also mean 1, 2, 3, or 1st, 2nd, 3rd. In the Greeks, they wrote numbers this way. They used the letters of the alphabet. Alpha represents 1, beta represents 2, and so on. So perhaps we shouldn't think of Euclid's A, B, C as algebraic designations. Perhaps it simply means the first point, the second point, and so on. So that makes it seem a lot closer to the pointing hypothesis, the oral tradition way of thinking. Perhaps the standard way for mathematicians to explain the reasoning was to point to a picture and say, this one, that one, and so on, when they're referring to geometrical entities, lines and points. Then, to encode that in writing, they used alpha, beta, gamma, and so on, to mean the, you know, the first point I said and the second point I said, stuff like that. So if that's right, then the letters in the English version of the elements are a bit deceptive. They seem more algebraic or more modern than they really are. From that point of view, uh, diagrams in number theory make some sense then if they meant well, the first number I said, the second one, you know, if the first device the second, then the second, you know, it's, you could reason that way uh, if you didn't have algebraic notation. It, it kind of fits. In fact, uh, there, this interpretation is not uh, so far-fetched. In early modern geometry in the 17th century, you sometimes do find people uh, labeling points in their diagrams 1, 2, 3 instead of A, B, C. The, the, the names of points are numbers instead of letters because they thought that's the right way to translate Greek into Latin. So Euclid Alpha is really a one and so, and so on. These people were sensitive to Greek culture but uh, and they had a point. But nowadays that stuff is forgotten and we take the ABC stuff uh, for granted. So here's another fun linguistic cultural perspective on uh, diagrams in Greek geometry. The language in which Euclid describes constructions is quite odd. Let the circle ABC have been described. This is the type of phrase thing that he uses. Uh, the, the language of Greek mathematics makes the author and temporality disappear from a proof, as one historian has put it. Euclid is not saying that he's drawing the diagram. He's also not telling the reader to draw, draw the diagram. It's just sort of commanding the diagram into existence. 
you know the book of Genesis in the Bible. Let there be light, God said, and there was light. Euclid uses literally the same kind of construction. It's exactly the same verb form as in the ancient Greek version of the Bible. Just as God makes heaven and earth by merely pronouncing that they exist, let them be. You know, so also Euclid makes geometrical objects appear just by ordering them to be or declaring that they exist. It's not I draw or you draw, it's just let it have been done. So you could read this as supporting a platonic conception of mathematics. Euclid seems to be distancing himself from actual drawing. The objects of mathematics, they just are. They're not something you or I have to make. But here's a counter-argument to this interpretation. Uh, Ravil Netz argues that actually Euclid's grammatical construction merely reflects a purely practical circumstance of the Greek tradition. Namely, that Greek mathematicians had to prepare their diagrams in advance due to technical limitations of the visual media available to them. Here's what Netz writes. Of the media available to the Greeks, none had the ease of writing and rewriting. Standard media were papyri and wax tablets. For larger audience, such as Aristotle's lectures, the only practical option was wood painted white. But none of these ways of representing figures is essentially different from a diagram as it appears in a book. The limitations of the media available suggest that the preparation of the diagram took place prior to the communicative act. It's a consequence of the inability to erase. This, in fact, is the simple explanation for the use of perfect imperatives such as let the point A have been taken. It reflects nothing more than the fact that by the time one comes to discuss the diagram, it has already been drawn. So that's Ravilnet's interpretation. If he's right, then Euclid's grammatical choice reflects only incidental cultural circumstances. There's nothing about philosophical commitments like relating to Plato, for example. So, let it have been done, it just means, I did it yesterday, so to speak. It doesn't mean that geometry is set apart from concrete action, and then that doing has no place in mathematics. That's not the implication of this phraseology. It just means, since I don't have a blackboard, I had to prepare complicated diagrams in advance and bring them to, to the lecture instead of drawing them on the spot. It's fascinating how the same aspect of the text takes on such a different meaning when the cultural context is taken into account compared to the purely philosophical reading. In fact, let me tell you about another striking aspect of Greek manuscripts, which is also like that. Namely, the way that direct diagrams are drawn in the manuscripts of Greek geometry. Diagrams in manuscripts of Greek mathematical treatises are very often very poorly drawn. They are oversimplified. They are very crudely schematic. For example, ellipses, parabolas, hyperbolas are represented as pieces of circles and so on. It's very poor pictorial accuracy. And also the simplicity and specificity of the diagrams often obscure important mathematical points. For example, the figure for the Pythagorean theorem is often drawn in manuscript with the two legs of the triangle being equal. So the two small squares of the Pythagorean theorem equality is, are, are equal to one another. It's completely... Of course, the theorem is true for any right-angled triangle. The diagram gives a misleading impression that the theorem is less general than it really is. So you might say, aha, 
Clearly, the Greeks didn't care about diagrams. They were poorly executed, poorly thought through. Diagrams couldn't have been an important part of geometry, therefore. But not so fast. The diagrams are drawn this way in the manuscripts that exist today. But who wrote these manuscripts and when? In fact, the oldest manuscript of Euclid's elements that exist today is closer to us in time than it is to Euclid. It's from the Middle Ages, a thousand years ago. That might seem ancient enough, but Euclid lived 1300 years before that. So there were no printing presses until the 15th century. For, for well over a thousand years, the book had to be copied by hand. You had to hire a scribe to write the whole thing out. Or, you know, they had monks in monasteries copying books and so on. Manuscripts are very fragile. The, the Greeks wrote on papyrus. It takes a, a miracle for a roll of papyrus to survive more than 2,000 years. Just think of books from the 19th century, maybe some old book from your grandparents or something. They're already falling apart. That was only a hundred years ago. You know, imagine storing that thing for 20 times as long. It will fall apart on its own. That's not even counting the risks of fires and floods and insects and wars and so on. So few documents from Greek times survive to this day and hardly any of those are mathematical. Only the tiniest little scraps of mathematics from antiquity itself are still around today. It's not enough to say anything about how the Greeks uh, dealt with diagrams. We don't know how Euclid did it. You know, we don't have anything written by Euclid or any other leading mathematician. We only have these later copies, medieval copies. Or a better way to put it, of course, it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy and so on in many steps. Our oldest manuscripts may very well be, who knows, maybe 20 or 30 copying steps away from Euclid's original, you know, if you trace it. Its history, the state of the diagrams in these manuscripts. Perhaps it says more about the copying and the copyists than it does about the original Greek way of doing diagrams. The scribes who copied these manuscripts, they probably often knew very little or no mathematics. They probably had some training as scribes, you know, training in Greek, in writing, uh, literature, philosophy, but perhaps they mostly copied literary texts and so on, theological texts. So they were probably... Uh, pretty good at copying text, not though at copying diagrams, which they were not accustomed to from other kinds of texts that they were used to copying, right? Pretty straightforward to copy text if you know the language, and and A is an A, you you can't really misinterpret. But the diagrams are a lot more subtle. Often you can only understand what aspects of a diagram are essential by studying the text, and the logic of the proof that goes with the diagram. But the scribes, they would not have done this. Right, they were hired copyists, they were not research students. They didn't study the content as a rule, they just copied it blindly for for a paycheck, They're like a photocopier. So that's enough to explain why the diagrams are so simplistic. It's natural in that context of, of copying that the diagrams gradually degenerate and converge to the more simplistic versions. It's the predictable outcome of repeated copying by generations of scribes who are largely ignorant of mathematical content for a very simple reason. An ignorant copyist can easily misinterpret a subtle diagram in a simplistic way. However, going the other way around toward a more subtle, more exact diagram, that could only be done by somebody with a solid understanding of mathematical content who could then restore the diagram based on what text suggests. So, for instance, consider the example of the Pythagorean theorem. 
a scribe might get a version of the figure where the two legs of the triangle look approximately similar and then mistakenly assume that exact equality was intended. So he then copies it that way as if they really should be exactly equal to smaller size of the triangle. And then, well, now the diagram has specificity in it. Others will then keep copying the simplified diagram, the one with the the overspecified one with the two sides being exactly equal. No one will then restore more generality into the diagram because that would require uh, revising the figures based on mathematical understanding. And that was not the task of the copying scribes. There's a fun paper on this by Christian Karman, a recent volume of History of Mathematica. Karman, he tested this hypothesis with his students. He had them go in a circle and copy mathematical diagrams from one another, like the children's games, Chinese whispers or telephone, it's called, where you whisper something and then the, you try to pass it on and the, uh, the next person whispers it in the air to the next one. And by the time it is, the message has gone full circle, it has become something else, completely corrupted. So it's the same with diagrams. You can see, in fact, especially the point of the, uh, the specificity aspect, how that emerges from this process the original diagram, it might show two lines, say, meeting at an angle of perhaps uh, 75 degrees. Okay, copying is a bit imperfect. Maybe someone copied it a bit more like 82 degrees. And then the next guy thinks, uh, well, 82 is pretty close to 90, isn't it? It probably meant 90. He just tr tried to draw 90 and he got it a little bit wrong and made it 82. So then they make it 90 exactly. And from that point on, everybody's called, oh, yeah, 90 degrees. It's, that's supposed to be exactly 90, so I'm copying exactly 90 degrees it looks a lot more intentional than 82 degrees, right? So that's why the process always goes towards more specificity. Somebody drew 90 degrees, they did it on purpose. Somebody drew 82, you're guessing that they missed 90, even though the guy actually missed 75, and so on. So we cannot conclude, therefore, anything about ancient philosophy of mathematics from the way diagrams are drawn in these manuscripts, the, the, the aspect of the manuscript sources is that they are drawn this particular way, that is very likely merely an artifact of transmission. Uh, it says nothing about ancient geometry itself. We can't say what Euclid thought about diagrams by drawing a conclusion of, of these artifacts that have been uh, inserted into manuscripts only by sort of accident, cultural uh, coincidence. So we still don't know what Euclid thought about diagrams. We don't know what Plato thought. His opinion was reportedly that mathematicians who descend to the things of sense are corruptors and destroyers of the pure excellence of geometry. This is how Plutarch summarizes uh, Plato's opinion. Basically an anti-diagram agenda. However, there is no evidence that mathematicians agreed with this, shared these sentiments. On the contrary, the very combative way in which this view is presented by Plato and others show that, in fact, these views must have been far from the consensus. Plato himself openly puts his view in diametrical contrast with that of the geometers. Here's what he says in the Republic. No one with even a little experience of geometry, will dispute that this science is entirely the opposite of what is said about it in the accounts of its practitioners. They give ridiculous accounts of it, for they speak like practical men, and all their accounts refer to doing things. They talk of squaring, applying, adding, and the like, whereas the entire subject is pursued 
for the sake of knowledge and for the sake of knowing what always is, not what comes into being and passes away. So that's Plato's opinion, and it's interesting that he he doesn't pretend that he's summarizing what the mathematicians think, but on the contrary, he's openly at war with the mathematicians and saying, well, they all get it wrong. They talk as if diagrams of physicality is irrelevant, but no, 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 they're all wrong. So Plato is the minority view, uh, according to his own framing, it would seem, an outsider view. And uh, Plutarch uh, reports on the same conflict. He also makes it crystal clear that Plato's views on geometrical matter were opposite to that of the leading mathematicians of his day. Here's what Plutarch says. Plato himself censured Edoxus and Archytas and Maniacmus for endeavoring to solve the doubling of the cube by instruments and mechanical constructions. So indeed, not only is there no evidence that any notable Greek mathematician was a Platonist, in fact, the Platonist sources themselves clearly and openly admit that their view was this ideological extreme that was not widely shared, especially not among mathematicians. They were, in fact, Plato's openly attacking mathematicians for not agreeing with him. So, well, what's the alternative then? If these mathematicians were not Platonists, what were they? Maybe they didn't care about philosophy at all. That's one interpretation that many people have found appealing. Here's how Revil Nets puts it. Undoubtedly, many mathematicians would simply assume that geometry is about spatial physical objects, the sort of thing a diagram is. The centrality of the diagram meant that the Greek mathematician would not have to speak up for his ontology. The diagram acted effectively as a substitute for ontology. One went directly to the diagram, did the dirty work, and when asked what the ontology behind it was, one mumbled something about the weather and went back to work. That's what Nets thinks. It seems consistent with Plato's rants against the geometers that the geometers might have been disinterested in these kinds of questions indeed. However, I think Nets is really uh, selling the mathematicians short. I do not believe that the Greek mathematicians simply assumed this stuff. One could only mumble something about the weather if you press them about these philosophical underpinnings of the diagrammatic reasoning. I suspect that on the contrary, the Greek mathematician did have a philosophically sophisticated defense of their ontological stats. From a modern point of view, the right way to do geometry is as a formal axiomatic deductive system. The Greek tradition has often been interpreted as aspiring toward but falling short of this ideal. According to this view, Euclid's elements was a brave and admirable attempt at the formal treatment of geometry, especially for its time, but it contains some fundamental flaws stemming from Euclid's inability to fully avoid implicit reliance on intuitive and visual assumptions. Uh, Euclid should have distanced himself more from the pictures. Is the, that's the modern uh, standard opinion in the modern mathematical community. Operationalism is what I call the alternative. It's a way of thinking that embraces visual reasoning and keeps abstract logic at arm's length. Uh, this arguably fits the geometrical tradition better than the formalistic conception of geometry. Indeed, it is well known that Greek geometry sometimes bases inferences on diagrammatic considerations that are not explicitly formalized. Now, the most famous example is proposition one of the elements. In this proposition, the existence of a point of intersection of two circles is tacitly assumed. It cannot arguably be formally justified from Euclid's definitions or postulates. So, 
well, uh, from a modern point of view, you say, well, that's a terrible gap or mistake. Modern mathematician rejects anything that is not obtained through logical deduction from formal axioms. But an alternative is the operationalist point of view, according to which the geometry rejects anything that is not obtained through concretely defined operational procedures, constructions, actions with ruler and compass. And we can formulate the difference between these two points of view in terms of what kind of audience the geometer is trying to convince. If we adopt a modernistic point of view, we can picture the audience of a mathematical proof as a veritable kind of logic parsing machine, a computer. The mathematician feeds in statements in the forms of symbolic strings in a suitable formal language, uh, one by one, step by step, corresponding to a proof, and the machine they tests whether each statement followed from the one before it based on logical inference rules or previously established theorems. So this point of view fits very uneasily with the classical geometry for a range of reasons, including the use of diagram-based reasoning. The Euclid's proof of Proposition 1 is not of that form that you could use to kind of feed into a a machine that goes bleep, bleep, bloop and, and tells you whether it's right or wrong because there is no axiom or logical principle that legitimates the introduction of the point of intersection of two circles, which is not, uh, uh, from a logical point of view, not accounted for. The operationalist point of view, on the other hand, envisions the audience of a mathematical proof very differently. Euclidean proof is addressed at a person with a ruler and a compass. This person is indeed every bit as critical as the logic machine of from the modern that the modernists envision. This person with the ruler and the compass, the, the audience, the mathematical proofs, it's hell bent, so to speak, on trying to argue against us at every stage. He's questioning everything, just like the Greeks always did. So we are trying to convince him to nevertheless concede the truth of our theorems. And we do this not by appealing to formal logical inferences. Instead, we make our opponent draw things. We build our results up from simple operations with ruler and compasses. In this way, we put our critic or opponent in a very difficult position. He is forced to either agree with us or to deny a very specific concrete claim about a very specific concrete figure that he himself has drawn. For instance, what is this person with the ruler and compass, or this opponent, this critic, what is he supposed to say about the intersection of circles in uh, Proposition 1 of Euclid's Elements? He just drew two circles himself on a piece of paper or in the sand. It would be ridiculous for him to claim that uh, there's no justification for the assumption that they intersect. They clearly intersect right there in front of his eyes. He himself just drew it using tools whose validity he had uh, admitted that are difficult to challenge. So, well... You know, he would look like a fool if he's standing around saying, oh, I don't think they meet. You just, it's right there. Uh, you, you, it's, how could you deny such a thing? Operationalism gives then absolute primacy to the concretely constructed diagram. The skeptic has no other foothold from which to reject the proof. If you want to argue with us, argue with the diagram that you yourself just drew, which is very difficult to do. The logic machine of the modernist paradigm, it would catch this gap in Proposition 1 of Euclid's Elements at once. It would shoot down the proof. It would say, no, 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 the bleep, bleep, error. 
but uh, the operationalist mathematics is not susceptible to that kind of critique. Geometrical proofs are claims about what happens when you carry out concrete constructions. Constructed diagrams is all there is. The only way to question a geometrical proof is to question what it says about a concretely constructed diagram. But then, from that point of view, the skeptic or our opponent who is uh, who we are trying to force to concede the validity of our proofs, that skeptic cannot hide behind sophistical logic or vague generalities. That skeptic is instead forced to either concede the validity of the proof or deny something so obvious that it will look ridiculous. So if you don't even believe the most elementary, you know, the most obvious fact that is drawn right in front of you, then you don't have much credibility as a critic if you are staking your opposition on denying something that's immediately obvious. So the, the conception, this way of thinking of the proof as addressing this a skeptic or opponent, it fits well, doesn't it, with the Greek tradition. Like a Socratic dialogue, you are extracting concessions from a determined opponent in incremental steps. That's just what Socrates does in all the dialogues of Plato, isn't it? Piece by piece, he's asking a question. Okay, I agree with that. Okay, but then you also agree with this. Okay, and then you find you find yourself having reached a certain conclusion, step by step, like that. You know. Uh, likewise, you had this uh, this whole uh, culture that Socratic dialogues are reflective of a broader culture of disputants who would uh, there's this stage debate kind of uh, culture in which that arose. So this mathematical model of mode of thinking of mathematical proofs along those terms, it would fit the, the broader uh, philosophical climate of the Greek culture quite well then in that respect. So I think one could argue that the diagrammatic inferences that Euclid permits are precisely those that this kind of skeptic who has drawn the diagram himself could not reasonably doubt. This also fits well with uh, Kenneth Manders uh, has written about this, some, some influential papers on this. He's, he makes this observation that uh, Euclid permits diagrammatic inferences only of properties of the diagram that are invariant under minor variations or imperfections in the drawing process. So, for instance, in Proposition 1 of the Elements, the equality of the legs of the triangle, they, that can, of course, not be established by merely visual inspection of the diagram. Instead, those equalities have to be derived from postulates and definitions, as do all exact properties of diagrams in Euclid's geometry. Indeed, a skeptic could very well question whether such properties hold, uh, despite having just constructed the diagram himself. The equality of the legs of the triangle that is drawn in Proposition 1 of the Elements is not immediate from the diagram in and of itself. It only follows when we remind ourselves that we use the same radius for both circles and all the radii of a circle are equal, and that's how you get the equality. We could draw the diagram without keeping that in mind. It does, it's not automatically encoded in a, in a diagram the exact equality of those segments. You could say, well, they look approximately equal. Maybe they're just close. Maybe they're not exact. Right? But once you start saying, no, because it's a circle, because the radii of the circle are equal, etc., then you can establish the equality. So you could draw the diagram without sort of automatically becoming aware of the equality of the of the legs of the triangle. However, you could not draw the diagram without automatically directly becoming aware that one circle cuts 
unequivocally right through the other one that is undeniable so that's why one of these things have to be proven from axioms from definitions while the other one can just be taken straight from the diagram from this point of view that i call operationalism it's important to note that it relies on diagrammatic reasoning only in this restricted sense it attributes foundational status to diagrams in certain respects but of course it does not go as far as to say that the truth of propositions or veracity of solutions to problems can be verified merely by measurements in a diagram. Of course, such things have to be established by rigorous demonstration. That's exactly the main preoccupation of Greek mathematics. But that's not incompatible with the limited role for diagrammatic-based uh, reasoning having a place in geometry as well. What Plato says about inferring geometric truths from diagrams remains true also from the operationalist point of view. Here's a quote from the Republic. If someone experienced in geometry were to come upon diagrams very carefully drawn and worked out, he'd consider them to be very finely executed, but he'd think it ridiculous to examine them seriously in order to find the truth in them about the equal, the double, or any other ratio. This is what Plato says. And indeed, of course, he's right. Exact properties like uh, ratios where the one thing is exactly equal or exactly twice the size of another thing, that type of thing cannot be inferred from diagrams. No matter how carefully drawn the diagram is, you can't trust them for that type of thing, just as Plato says. But this point of view that I call operationalism, this idea about giving a limited role to diagrams, that point of view does not rely on this kind of epistemic overreach by which you can get exact properties from diagrams by measurement. Instead, the, the uses of diagrammatic reasoning that is permitted from the point of view that I have described is much more restrictive, limited to essentially uh, qualitative, topological, inexact uh, inferences from diagrams. So this point of view of operationalism, it makes sense of the Euclidean practice uh, with regard to diagrammatic reasoning. It eliminates the need to attribute to Euclid a big logical blunder in its very first proof, or indeed the need to denigrate visual aspects of Euclid's reasoning as lowly intuition and imperfect form or style of mathematics. Instead, it articulates a philosophy of mathematics that incorporates this aspect of Euclidean mathematical practice, the visuality, the diagrammatic uh, anchoring of geometry, into a coherent and purposeful whole. So that's one way to argue that the so-called logical gap in Euclid's Proposition 1 is not a gap at all. It's only a gap if you want geometry to be completely reduced to formal logic. Now, from the point of view of operationalism, it is not a gap. So, there are other ways to try to save Euclid's proof, the more conservative ways. If you know some other mathematics, it's a fun game to play to try to read all kinds of things into Euclid's definitions. For example, Euclid's definition of a circle specifies that it's contained by a single curve and that it has an inside by implication also an outside therefore in proposition one when you draw the second circle it's evident that the second circle will have some points inside and some points outside the first circle so you can argue from that sort of topologically there is no way a continuous curve could go from the inside of a closed curve to the outside without crossing the curve therefore the existence of the intersection point can be regarded as implied by Euclid's definitions. So rather than a logical gap, you can say, oh, well, actually it does follow from Euclid's axiomatic uh, 
uh, structure there because of the way that he has defined a, a circle as a closed figure. If you're a modern mathematician, you might well reply, well, you know, actually that depends on the underlying uh, field. The argument works for the plane of real numbers, but not if the underlying field is that of the rational numbers, for instance. Then the point of intersection does not exist because of the coordinates of the intersection point of two zeros, something with the roots and stuff in it. So Euclid really ought to specify the underlying field, something equivalent to that, before the argument based on this inside and outside could work. So interestingly, one could argue that Euclid sort of does this, actually, because he says in definition 3 that the extremities of lines are points. Okay, if you wear your modern glasses, you can read this as saying that lines contain their limit points. So the Euclidean plane is a complete metric space, in other words. And this rules out the problem of the argument based on the rational numbers. So, oh well, you know, if you know modern mathematics, it's fun to think along these lines. For my part, I vote for the operationalist reading of Euclid as the more historically plausible way of saving Euclid's proof of Proposition 1. But here's an objection to the operationalist interpretation. The so-called generality problem. Geometrical theorems are about entire classes of objects, infinite sets of things. For instance, the angle sum of all triangles. So the theorem is ma making a claim about an infinite collection, all possible triangles. However, all geometrical proofs, though in the classical tradition, they are always illustrated with and the reason based upon one particular diagram. So how then are you supposed to bridge this gap? You know, if I'm proving something based on one picture and it's supposed to apply to any triangle, much more general, how can you get a general conclusion from an argument that is based on the specific? So the standard way to defend the geometrical reason against this challenge is to say that, well, geometrical proofs concern only properties that hold uh, generally and do not rely on incidental properties that hold only for the particular diagram. This view was expressed already by Proclus in antiquity. Operationalism is just a very different way of dealing with the generality problem. It denies the premise that there is such a thing as all triangles in the first place. You can take this more radical stance. You can say, well, before you have put the pen on the paper, there is no geometry. There are no lines. There is no circle, no, no triangle. We do not make a metaphysical assumption, as modern mathematics does, that there is some pre-existing universe of these things out there. Uh, this mysterious set of all triangles, they're already kind of pre-existing. And geometry just looks for universal truths about those things that are already there, that like the infinite set of all triangles. In fact, you can say, no, uh, you, geometry is only about what you yourself have made and not about things that we, we do not need to make this assumption that is sort of metaphysical, almost quasi-theological assumption that all the triangles are already there, some, some mysterious sense. Uh, instead, we can say, no, uh, everything that exists is what we draw. So from this point of view, the problem of generality ceases to exist. So, for example, the angle sum theorem, we shouldn't interpret it as saying that there is this infinitude of triangles, and all of those ones have an angle sum 180 degrees. No, instead you must interpret the theorem to say any triangle has an angle sum of 180 degrees. Sounds like the same thing, but really, if you spell it out from an operational point of view, what that means is 
if you put your ruler down and you draw a line segment and another line segment and another one, then the angles of that one triangle that you drew, that one will have angles some 180 degrees. So the theorem has no other meaning than saying that anytime you make a triangle, this is what's going to happen. It doesn't assume that the triangles are already there. It just says for any one that you make, it will have this property. So the proof then is not a logical kind of schema that's talking about an infinite class of objects. Instead, it's a set of instructions for a skeptic to carry out that will convince him, regardless of which triangle it started with, that the theorem is true for that triangle. It is indeed precisely the strength of the insistence of constructions to reduce everything from the abstract to the concrete in this way. We only talk about what we can see and draw and put on the table in front of us. To do otherwise would be to engage in empty metaphysical speculation according to the operationalist point of view. Greek geometry is remarkably consistent with this reading in certain respects. Indeed, as uh, Reville Nets has observed, Greek mathematical texts never explicitly claim generality beyond the concrete proof based on a particular diagram. From a modern point of view, any reliance on diagrams in mathematics is inherently problematic, since mathematics is, in essence, independent of diagrams. From that point of view, diagrams are merely a secondary representation of mathematics, and also, furthermore, one representation that is contaminated by intuition, by other limitations. How, then, can diagrammatically based reasoning be a legitimate way of doing mathematics? That is to say, how could we ever be sure that what is true of diagrams is true of the actual content of mathematics? Well, operationalism does not answer the question, of course, but rejects it. There is nothing more actual than mathematics. Mathematics actually isn't about some abstract uh, concepts, but about things that we draw. So the generality problem is dissolved since operationalism rejects the Platonist ontology of mathematics uh, on which it is based. Nothing exists except what the geometer has constructed. This view actually re-emerged in modern mathematics for reasons that were independent of classical geometry. Uh, here's how the famous Dutch uh, intuitionist uh, Brouwer puts it in his dissertation. Wheresoever in logic the word all or every is used, this word, in order to make sense, tacitly involves the restriction insofar as belonging to a mathematical structure which is supposed to be constructed beforehand. So what Brower is saying then is, for example, that there is no such thing as all triangles. There is only all triangles you have made. Anytime you say all triangles, it just implies that that means all which have been constructed. So, so to be sure, there many people who are concerned about the generality problem, they will feel that operationalism, so to speak, solves this problem then only by introducing further problems of equal or greater uh, magnitude. For one thing, operationalism implies that the very nature of meaning itself makes it impossible to get away from the human reference point. You know, the, this is a phrase from uh, Bridgman, leading operationalist philosopher, and scientist, it follows, for, since nothing exists or has meaning in geometry except through human action, right? If I, you make the thing, the, the triangles come into being through our action, so everything is sort of related to our own uh, interference. 
So it that makes everything. I don't know if you should call it subjective, but in any case, uh, tied to human agency, which is not agreeable from a Platonist point of view. But well, operationalism doesn't mind. It doesn't. It, it denies that this is a problem. Why should human knowledge not be linked to human uh, experience? It's not such a strange thing to say. So regarding the generality problem more specifically, then the modern mind might say that, well, the operational solution, it just kind of shifts the problem one step over. Even the operationalist is committed to a form of generality in the sense that the proof of, for example, the angle sum theorem must always work for any given triangle. So isn't the operationalist mathematician then still obligated to somehow justify that the proof has this this kind of generality, which is essentially the same as the original form of generality, just in slightly different words. Well, it's of course true that the proof is intended to be general in this sense. But officially, the mathematician does not need to be committed to having proved that that is the case. Uh, the, the operationalist mathematician says, I assert that such and such a construction would always have such and such an outcome. If you want to prove me wrong, feel free to try to come up with a counterexample. Of course, psychologically, the mathematician presenting a proof must be convinced that the argument will always work for any triangle and not, and not be dependent on some specific about the particular triangle that he had in mind. Because if you were to present an argument that was limited in this way, and you, you're claiming something that this was going to work, anytime you, you take any triangle, it's always going to be like this. And it turns out that you have actually made a mistake because you limited yourself to, uh, in the conceptional triangle that you had, was limited by your picture that you had in mind and didn't take into account the full possibility. If you were to make that uh, mistake, then critics would shoot you down and the counterexample would be forthcoming and you would be exposed as a, as a fool. You had made a claim that turned out to be false. So indeed, that's of course very important that uh, proofs are that have a kind of generality in that sense, that they are uh, generalizable that uh, to any, for example, to the class of all triangles, if that is what the theorem is talking about. However, whether the particular argument given uh, does or does not have that generalizability, whether the proof is uh, general enough to cover all cases, this is something that, in principle, it can be left to the discretion of the mathematician's intuition. You might say that internally, the operationalist mathematicians are, of course, committed, concerned with that kind of generality when they are designing, a presenting a proof, publishing a proof. They are, of course, have to pay attention to that and to make sure that the thing is general. However, externally, as a reply to uh, skeptical or philosophical challenges to the epistemological status of mathematics, it is not necessary for mathematicians to saddle themselves with the burden of claiming that their proofs themselves have inherent characteristics that strictly ensure this kind of generality. Because that would be a very ambitious uh, claim to make and one that would be easy to criticize or challenge. Instead, mathematicians can restrict themselves to presenting the proof merely as a challenge to a skeptic. The, the proof is a, is a challenge that says, apply these constructions and these inference steps to any one figure that fulfills the, the conditions stated in the theorem, and you will find that you cannot credibly doubt the validity of any step 
and else you will become convinced that the proposition holds for that figure, whichever figure you started with. And you, then you can start over with another figure and do the same thing, and you will find that it's always going to work. So it's possible for the operationalist to maintain that, that this is all that a proof is. So you don't have to say that the proof sort of uh, in advance proves it for all possible figures all in one go. It only needs to say, the only, you only need to say, well, it's a recipe that would work in any specific case. And it is a challenge to, to a critic to disprove that. So you may say that uh, this kind of restrictive view of what the proof is sells mathematics short. It fails to account for the nature and status of mathematical knowledge. Well, however that may be, the fact remains that operationalism at least makes it possible to take this stance. The restrictive view of the nature of proofs fits naturally with the operationalist conception of mathematical uh, content and meaning. While it is also incompatible with uh, Platonist conception of uh, the nature of mathematical theory. So this restrictive view, it's a kind of a scorched earth defensive position. It can be useful when under philosophical attack. It's saying that this is the only sense of mathematics one is willing to defend against skeptical attack, of course, does not pre preclude that you might have more expansive, maybe Platonist beliefs in private. Nevertheless, the point is that this operationalist stuff is a powerful way of cutting off lines of philosophical attack without changing uh, the practice of mathematics substantially. So, let's see. In conclusion, I have argued that Greek mathematicians were prepared to base geometry on actual diagrams, despite their physicality, despite their links to human action, to perception. Uh, Greek mathematics went against modern tastes in this respect. One could argue against this by pointing to the crudeness of diagrams in surviving manuscripts or the strangely passive language that Euclid and others uh, used to describe constructions of diagrams. However, we have seen that those things can better be explained as a result of cultural context rather than philosophy of mathematics. The modern view that geometry should be studied through abstract reasoning, not dependent on the visual or the physical, it also has ancient support in Plato's philosophy, However, Plato was not a mathematician. In the words of Francis Bacon, when human learning suffered shipwreck at the end of the classical period, the systems of Aristotle and Plato, like planks of lighter and less solid material, floated on the waves of time and were preserved, while more mathematically advanced works were lost forever. I think Francis Bacon was right about that. To understand ancient mathematics, therefore, we need to look beyond the surface. We must look beyond what loud mouths like Plato. We must seek instead the assumptions conveyed implicitly in the way mathematicians wrote their proofs. Based on this kind of evidence, the diagram-based mathematical practice appears to be uh, quite plausible. That's what I have argued. Thank you.